This is John. This is Trav. And this is Paul. Welcome to the TriTac Games Podcast. Your podcast of getting in a skinny little boat and heading off for the new world. This week, we are exploring one of the fringeworthy races, the Norlanders. And we're going to tell you all about the Norlanders and their great struggle for survival until they met up with the grand explorers from Earth Prime. Okay, so let's move on to the actual culture of the Norlanders. What we see here on the page in the Fringeworthy book, this is as they were met by the Fringeworthy. It's how they are now. It's not the way they were. as we've done so many other times, we have to kind of like peek under the skirts a bit to try to figure out how this all works. Oh, before we do that, we should probably talk about the racial traits that we gave them. They get a big boost in strength and in con and in dex. All their physical stats are all boosted, but they take big minuses in intelligence and wisdom. They're just kind of even on charisma. Strong and hardy, having to survive in cold environments, you know, right. frailty is not something that they're going to have in abundance. They're just going to be hardy, yeah. trudge through the snow every day. You know, it's the old went uphill both ways to school in the snow, ate dirt, yeah. was thankful for it type. You know? and innovation apparently was not well rewarded in their culture. They're kind of like the how D and D dwarves are. They'll stick with the same thing, tradition. I disagree. We've already said the Erders are the dwarves. I think these guys are the half-orcs. The half-orcs. Nah, the, the kobolds or something. They're definitely not halflings. Well, no, kobolds, they would sit there, they scavenge technology. Yeah, I can say. These are just hillmen. I think it's unfair the way this, those races are set down. But, Bruce, I mean, they have that dwarven trait of tradition. They're going to oh, stick... Yeah. The same thing. That's what I meant. Not so much that they were dwarven like the editors, but just whatever works, works. They're very conservative. Yes. But yeah, the strength and con, oh yeah, plus three, plus two. Oh yeah, dex, okay. Well, you know, you got to outrun, you know, occasional big animals. So yeah, but I see them definitely the strength and con because they, if they fought something nine times out of ten, it was... Hand to hand, if you've seen the movie Outlander with Jim Caviezel and John Hurt and Ron Perlman, where a man from outer space came to Earth and they listed it as a colony world, and he was there in 1066 among the Vikings. If you saw that movie, you saw how they fought. There was not a lot of ranged attacks going on. Ron Perlman had two large war hammers, one in each hand, and he was swinging them, you know, f- swinging for the fences with them. 
Ron Perlman would be a good Norlander. Yeah, John, have you seen Outlander with Jim Caviezel? No. Not a bad movie. That would be probably a good, decent representation of Vikings, along with the 13th yeah. Warrior with Antonio Banderas and Omar Sharif. So that would be another one if you wanted to see kind of what these Norlanders would be like. Those would be two good recent movie examples. Watch the Vikings. The Tony Curtis. Okay. Oh, no. The new Vikings that was just put out by the History Channel. It was done more as a as a, uh, as a a uh, storyline, more like a series. It's like eight episodes. They're each an hour long. Yeah. It's like a miniseries, yeah. You know, they illustrated the Viking Sunstone, how they were able to navigate from Scandinavia to England to Iceland without a compass. The magnetic compass hadn't been invented yet. Well, yeah, they just kept sight of the shorelines. Uh-uh. No, 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 no. The Viking Sunstone. There's a crystal that grows in, in, the, in, the, in that climb. And basically, if you're during the day, you can, you can set it so you actually can see where the sun is, even though it's cloudy. It allows them to determine where they are, and, they, and they, you're able to navigate just fine using their, sun, their sunstone. When you take this crystal and you hold it up to the light, you'll see two prisms. When you turn it so the prisms line up over each other, then you have the orientation of the sun. It tells you where the sun is in the sky in, in the depth of winter when you have heavy overcast skies. Oh, yeah, and they use that for navigation, and that's how they got to Iceland, and that's how they got to North America. The, it, the disadvantage is you can only go east-west. Advantage is you know where east-west is. Yep. If you, if you get a clear night, you can then determine where you are north-south. North, north, Mm-hmm. Yeah, people people just don't understand that lots of those primitive cultures used celestial navigation versus maps and where the position of the sun in the sky. They would get up in the early hours in the morning and take a position on where the stars were, and that told them in which direction, a more, an oasis, a city, or a mountain, or whatever feature they wanted to go. So when the sun rose, they didn't see where that was at, and then they march off in that straight line. But anyways, back to the racial traits. The racial traits make sense for a people that have to live in a climate where they have to wear a lot of extra clothes. In order to just have parity with other people, before then, they would have to be a a more robust, stronger people. It leans heavily towards warriors, and it doesn't take into account that they had an intellectual class. They had the bards who memorized all the sagas and things like that. They had sort of codes and laws they had they had people who sat like judges who had to know law i think they're kind of getting ripped off on the wisdom and intelligence here because you know what that far arctic north is not forgiving if you're dumb you're not going to last very long mother nature does not cut you a deal yeah and also it doesn't take account for those who've moved south who are living down in france along the mediterranean they're not going to need that that plus three strength or high constitution good living and they're living in nice nice weather well we're talking about racial bonuses here john i mean they're coming from this tough you know northern stock now yes okay so they go south and they you know they don't need you know to wear all those heavy clothes and all but they're still going to bring their culture with them they're still going to bring their fighting they're still going to bring their their games they're still going to bring their tests of courage, even though they might be in the south of France. Then they'll have drinking. They'll have drinking halls everywhere. Yeah. They might go out there and punch out cattle. For all I know. 
Alex Karras from Blazing Saddles came yeah, from. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, we, I'm more familiar with uh, cabering. Mm-hmm. Caber tossing, yeah. You know, and stuff like that that happened over in England. Most of their handcrafts used wood, and they did a lot of boat building, and that takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of physical strength to do things when you don't have machinery and, and such. If you don't have good metals for your tools, unless you're really good at making stone asses, you're going to be working pretty hard. So I, I can see them having a, big, a much stronger physicality than some, some people that might have grown up in the lap of um, you know, Rome uh, during the Ro- Holy Roman Empire. I, we're really talking about people who were hardly above savages who inherited an entire world. Talk about uh, uh, Norse boats. Now, don't don't imagine the the Viking boats. Those are actually designed for raiding. They actually had they actually had built seaworthy boats for trading. They're different design. They're actually very seaworthy, um, and they, they traveled to Iceland and Greenland in those suckers. You know, they carried horses on them. You don't normally carry horses on a small little raiding boat, but they did on their on their trading vessels though. You know, they're not big, you know, big horses, but they still. And Paul, you're right. I mean, we're, what, we're, what we're always looking at when we look at racial traits is if we give them a big bonus, we have to take away something else because that it's all supposed to equal out. But that's kind of a gamist reason. It isn't really a cultural reason. If it rubs you the wrong way, we recommend people don't use the racial traits. Just make them the way you think they should be. But if you do want to use the racial traits, then you kind of have to play fair and make these guys you know, a little bit tougher, a little bit less intellectual. Now, they have made some inroads, though, on taking care of themselves because they have a lifespan of 55 years. And if they really were medieval, that's more like 40 years. Oh, yeah. God, back in the medieval times, PL2 culture, you lived to be 55. You were ancient. Charlemagne lived to the 60s or 70s. Yeah, say he enjoyed a better diet than the local peasantry. Hey, John, coming back to your ships. Yeah. There's one re- dug up in Oseberg. It was 71 feet long. And another one that was built, it's called the Ghost Dog Ship. It was found in uh, Vestfold, Norway. It was 162 feet wide and 16 feet high. Yeah. Seagoing ships. I'm sorry, that was a mound. That was the mound it was buried under. It was 160 feet wide. Because <laughs> that would be a really wide ship. But this thing was... St- if I'm looking at the scale of the, of the humans decided who were excavating it, and they were down at the gunwale things, this thing was about 20 feet across. Yeah. Seagoing vessels. I mean, you know, for, for trade, not for raiding. To carry goods on. Other things about biology, uh, okay, 16 wakes, 6 sleeping, voice any range, 65% survival rate. That shows they didn't have good medicine. Yeah, that's true, yeah, because remember it was... We're talking about survival rate of offspring, you know, child, you know, getting, getting a kid from birth up to the point where they actually are a, a survivable child, someone that you put a name to. Okay, yeah, because, yeah, remember their, their medical technology was, it, PL2, a lot of it was still leeches and bloodletting, and yeah. So childbirth. So that, that, that makes their, their living to 55 years even more toward that robustness we were talking about. Yeah. Okay. Explains their good con. 
Well, you got the plus two con, yeah. I mean, it's, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah, smell, vision, and hearing are all pretty high. Well, yeah, you need those three senses to survive out in the wilderness and deal with animals and, you know, sense when bad weather's coming. Taste, well, they didn't have a lot of really zesty, spicy food, so that sense of taste wouldn't have been developed in touch. See how your see how your sense of touch is when you're on, out in the cold all day. <laughs> I'm in Detroit, right. man. Trust me. And winters, there are times I can't, you know, right. feel about forty percent of my body. Yeah. <laughs> I'm now, stopping now, did you walk. guys notice? Did you guys notice that the uh, the day is only twenty two hours long? Yeah, I was looking at that. Oh wait, yeah. Wow. Sorry. Did you guys catch that line in the platform? Warp stations are on the Italian comp on the Italian continent have become growing cities. When did Italy become a continent? So is is this world also an alt geological? I don't think so. I I think that's a mistake. Yeah, because it says, you know, Norlanders are fast becoming a sl- supply house for the IDA. Warp stations on the Italian continent have become growing cities. I think that was supposed to be peninsula. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We here at TriTech Games do our best, but we are human. We are not perfect. Yeah. Yes. Unfortunately, words like that get through spell checker. The word processor ate my words. Okay. <laughs> it was spelled correctly. Yeah, exactly. Oh, let's see here. Uh, okay. Homeworld, P negative five. They call it Airthay Prime. Temperature 28 to 95 degrees Fahrenheit, which is a little normal. colder than normal. Really? Well, I've seen other worlds, and they're a little warmer. Let's okay. go back here to... Is that supposed to be the temperature swing at the equator? What's it compared to Earth Prime? Well, because Earth Prime is 45 to 110 Fahrenheit. That's oh. the temperature range there. So, yeah, as compared to Earth Prime, the Norlander Earth is... A little colder. About 10 to 15 degrees cooler on the average. Huh. Okay. Actually, that makes sense. Because 1536 is the time of the Maunder Minimum. They're going through the little ice. They're going through the little ice age. Oh, okay. Never heard that term. That's why I was just wondering. Okay, so this is the little driest period. Yeah. So if everything lines up, yeah, it would be uh, starting with a population of five. This figure would be like a population of five million people in what nine hundred years. It may be. Uh, everyone gets funky. You might be seeing a population back up to a hundred million, maybe. That's getting really funky. <laughs> More like it's going to be like about in the forties, the forty to the fifty millions, probably. I don't know how this culture is about having multiple children. I don't know if it's considered a blessing or you're taunting the gods or something. A big hearty family. I would think you know they want to you know have many. You know, have many of the men children to carry on the name and the women to do. Yeah, I would think they'd want. Well, also, big families' problem is you got to deal with resources. You got to deal with, you know, the winter months get tight. You got to feed them. So I don't know if they have big families because big families do a lot of work, but big families also need to be fed. And also, 65% survival rate. You're not having big families anyways. Well, you're hate- trying to have big families. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I, I hate using this term, and I'm not tr- – and when you say you're not trying to do something, you often do. But the term might come off as sexist. You're not going to have the women be baby factories because 
you only have a 65% survival rate, so that's what, two out of three times you're going to have a kid survive, you're going to deal with a lack of health, a lack of sanitation, a lack of medical knowledge. Uh, elements are all going to come into play where they're just going to come to realize these Norlanders are going, having kids is a risky business. Yeah, we want to carry on our family line, but we're kind of putting our lives, you know, the women are kind of putting their lives in their own hands here whenever they pop out a kid because there's a, you know, one in three chance this kid's not going to survive. This is a little bit of egalitarian culture, Trav. Women own the hearth. Yeah. So they can kick a man out. Women have a vote in this sort of time period. Now, people are still having their professions by gender, but you do see women warriors. You do see women seamen in this culture that are fishermen and sailors. You find women who are judges. Not often the chieftain, but they may be the chieftain's advisor. So this... These Nordic cultures in our own time were really egalitarian for the period because they had so few people that they couldn't afford to just sideline one whole gender. I'm actually using a, a, a population calculator. If I pop in that they only have like 1.2 children, they die out. So they go the way of the Japanese? They're probably having two, two or three kids, but only one of them's reaching adulthood. I'm gonna say four, but they, but only two point two survive. So they hit submit, and it comes up with a population oh, of ah. There we go. Um, no, that doesn't. It comes up with a population of three hundred sixty-four million people. So no, that doesn't work either. <laughs> oh, we have to play with the numbers. Still have other factors, John, that wipe people out, even if they, if even if they reach adulthood. Yeah, there's still yeah. other plagues. There's still other diseases. Yeah, there's still, you know, the harsh life of of Iron Age, where you you have to make everything by hand. That just wipes people out. You know, there's a reason why our culture only 200 years ago, a young man was an apprentice at the age of 12, and he was a journeyman and considered an adult at age 16. Because he was going to be dead before he was 30, working himself right into the ground. Girls were married at 14, and they were considered old maids and maybe not marriageable at 16. And they often died in childbirth. It wasn't unusual for a man to have his second or third wife and have children from each of them. Look at Romeo and Juliet. They were basically 15 to 16 years old. (laughs) If not younger. I've heard that they may have been younger. Yeah. Yeah. Like 13, 14, yeah. Can you imagine doing that with age-appropriate Romeo and Juliet? No. Let's see here. Okay, yeah, you're equivalent, 1535. Yeah, okay. Tech expertise, survival, yes. And joined the IDA Fringe Discovery Year 2. So, yeah, early campaign, you're going to happen upon these guys. Okay, languages, uh, Latin Germanic, Latin and Norland trade. Latin Germanic, I would see that they would incorporate, as they, as they explored, they incorporated their the cultures that they came upon. And it was like, oh, we like this, we like this, this is nice. Latin, they probably would have used, they would have saw that as a lingua franca. There were missionaries in Scandinavia, even though they weren't turning over to Christianity, they still were missionaries, there's still people out there trying to get them to become Christians. Yeah, so the, the Latin language would have been prevalent. They would have kept it as its own language, but there would have been a pigeon of the Latin and Germanic. And the Norland trade, I just, again, I'm using the term that my ex, Scandahoovian. 
It just Norway, Sweden, Finland, Denmark all would have just made yeah their own pigeon between those uh, think, four or five countries. I think that Latin would become the language of of, of science, the language of, of knowledge of history, because was as they go and explore, you know, the yeah. European continent, they're going to find that that is the common language that's used yes, between the, the various. Yeah countries that are there than cultures. It's if somebody who knows Latin and they get down to Turkey or or you know Constantinople, they're going to find you know a few remaining books and they're going to be written in Latin. So they better yeah. know how to read it. But they don't use the same alphabet. I mean it's like it's like you or I traveling to China and picking up a book in Mandarin. You'll find somebody who can, can read it for you, maybe. I don't I just think Latin would die out. I think they're going to speak their Germanic and they're going to speak their Scandinavian languages because those use the runic alphabets. I just don't see Latin being as prevalent as it's gamed out here. No, well, no, because Bruce is right. All these things that they see because you'd see it inscribed on the walls and you would see it in, in, in preserved book and, books and scrolls. I mean, we understand things today because of the Rosetta Stone. But if they'd never found the Rosetta Stone in the sands of Egypt outside Alexandria, we wouldn't be able to read Egyptian. Okay, the plague hit in the 600s by 1116. Okay, so 500 years after this plague hit, they finally get to Rome. Yeah, 500 years, there'd be a lot of stuff that they would have to piece together. If they, find, if they do find scrolls, they're going to treat them like they're, like they're newborn babies because they're going to be very fragile. They're not sealed in, in uh, those bronze tubes or the wax and leather tubes. But yeah, I mean... It's one thing to discover a language and you want to adapt to it. It's another to find somebody who can read it to you and tell you what it sounds like. Like I said, the only way you can survive is, is if there is a small sect of Christianity still surviving in, in the Norse amongst, amongst them. Uh, you know, and they carry on the language. Of course, it may be, you know, after a couple hundred years, it's going to diverge somewhat. Well, languages change over time. Culture affects language. Language affects culture. Look at how English... You, if you were to talk to somebody from a hundred, an American from a hundred years ago, they wouldn't understand half the terms that we have because language has changed that much. So it sounds to me like you think we should just cross off this Latin fifty percent and say the Latin Germanic is all that would have survived. I would say yeah, that it more along the lines of Germanic would be there, and there would be Latin loan words for science and tech and law and religion that they would have picked up. I'm saying Germanic Scandinavian. And make like Latin like ten percent. Like there's a like there's a Roman colony that survived on the on the German coast or something. That's that's sort of kept the light burning as far as as being that dominant. I don't think so. Oh, you know where it survived? It wouldn't be Roman. It'd be British. You think Londinium or Caledonia? It could be that there's a there's a that genetic quirk. We were talking about before this. There's something called the Delta Thirty Five. It makes people immune to certain diseases. Perhaps these little enclaves, they're, they're completely immune, and they still speak English, and they still speak Latin. You know, because that's what it requires in the church. So they got these little, en tiny little enclaves of pre shift English with Latin tossed in. Yeah, well, let's just assume that that's true, John. A after 700 years, would they comprise a 50% chance of someone knowing that language? Because that's what this is saying. 
Yeah, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be Latin anymore. It'd be something else. I, I think that you could be true that there could be some you know abbey somewhere or whatever that's still holding the flame and still has Bibles in Latin and things like that. After all this time, they've been carefully you know recopied you know century after century. But I see Latin as being a very dead language at this point. Yeah, I know where it survived. It's when when these Norlanders get to get to Greece, those Greek Orthodox churches that are built on those tall pillar type stones, those those Greek mon- those Greek Orthodox monasteries that are just giant libraries on top of a, it's like a column of stone. You got to be raised in the basket or those three hundred foot tall ladders to get to it. And the climate's right for pres- preservation. Yeah, so that might be where. The little flame that is Christianity and the little flame that is Latin might still survive. And that's that would give you the Norlanders have Latin and they're rediscovering it. Well, it's Eastern Orthodox. Would it be Latin or would it be Greek? It'd be both. Remember the first Bibles were written Greek. Yeah. yeah. Probably both. Yeah, probably both. Yeah. Because the so. first Bible's written in Aramaic, then Greek, then Latin. So you'd have the Norse languages would be the predominant language then. You know, Norse, then Germanics, then whatever, you know, survives. Whatever's floating their boat someplace in the world. Like we said, if it's because they were in the northern climes, then you have Inuit, Aleut, Yakuts, Lap. Those languages still survive then. I think all of them would just be conglomerated into the Norland trade at that point. Yeah. In order to survive, they would just make a pidgin language so all these people could understand each other. Well, those, those Norse languages um, are so similar that they, it's, it's, like, it's like putting a, a New Zealander, a Canadian, a Brit, an American, and an Australian in a room. We get it, but the slang is different. Right, yeah, and and but I mean the Norland trade because all those other races, uh, excuse me, ethnicities. Let let me use the correct term. It's a, we're all one race here. Um, the the Yakuts, the Inuit, the Aleut, Aleut, yeah, Aleut. All those would help form this pigeon of Norland trade. All the the Scandahuvian languages, they're all similar enough. But all these other cultures that lived in the northern climes there in the Arctic Circle, totally different facets of, well, some of them are, may not even be on the Indo-European. Oh, Lap is not Indo-European. Well, neither, I don't think, are the Aleut and Inuit languages. All the Inuit languages, there's like maybe 10 or 11 different ones that I recall. Lap is original. Whatever was original to Europe, that's what, that's what Lap's from. And then the Indo-Europeans moved in, and the Laplanders and the Basque are the remaining centers of pre-Indo-European pre, you know, language. Oh, okay. But yeah, I would think that all those other ethnicities would have loan words. Because remember, the Norland trade is the Scandahubian languages are the core. All those other cultures would be giving in various loan words, and it would comprise this Norland trade pigeon. So... Actually, I could see some lap miners going, what, everyone died off? When did that happen? It's like, there's maybe places in the world where when you tell them everyone died off, they're going to go, when did that happen? Because they're so isolated, they they wouldn't even notice it. (laughs) 
you know, you know, the the Aleut and the Yakuts, they would never know. They, there was a big die-off. They don't ever deal with those people. Right. Okay, um, let's see. Personality and views. I think we've beaten the language thing enough. We'll just go down the list here. It's on the right side of the right up here from the Norlanders. Eunice, the high ones. They're gods. Yeah, they would see people coming through these portals, dressing different, looking different, talking. Well, no, they would talk the same. The whole the the, the yes. language gift. Talking Dress. very well. Yes. And I debt as friends. They would, of course, if you are, we work for the high ones. Well, then of course you're friends. Come on in, have some meat. You know, family important. Well, yeah, the center. You know, everything begins with family. So these people would have their families in order to. Yeah. You know, just for mutual survival. So, yeah, yeah. family would well, be I mean, very... Well, you it's can the sit- family, it's the clan. It's- yeah, clan. Yeah. Well, they spend all winter together in the same giant longhouse. Yeah. you got to love your brother. Yeah. <laughs> By middle of winter, you're going to stab him. They only live a couple feet apart. I mean, when you go to bed, you just you turn your back to the crowd, and then everybody pretends like you're not there, like they can't see you. Work? To survive. Well, yeah, that was their main first best thing. It says they're on tech expertise, survival. Work was, okay, we need to skin this animal for furs. We need to get the meat off the bone. We use the bone to make this. We got to, you know, make that, our weapons. And That kind of clashes with their description as being industrious. Because if you're only working to survive, you're not very industrious. You meet your, you meet your survival needs and then stop. Well, I don't see that. I, I just see them as, you know, they, uh, they understand the value of work because it's so necessary for their survival. Right. It says, by the turn of the millennium, these industrious people had begun to recolonize the more temperate regions and install their beliefs and culture to the very few survivors they found. Yeah, right. industrious I see as, yeah, they're hardworking, but also industrious would also imply that they're going to make the new things. And again, these people stuck by what work and they would stick by it. Industrious doesn't always mean in- innovative. Right. No. Yeah. Yeah. They might, they might have a dozen axes. Purpose of, of some of these colonies is to provide, pro- provide goods for the home, for the homeland back across the, uh, the, the, the North sea across the Baltic sea, you know? Yeah. You're, if you're industrious, you might, you might be the first fisherman to get his boat in the water in the morning and fish all day, and you and you fish six days a week when everybody else fishes four. But it, it's not a new innovation. You just work harder. But it says that they that they play often, which means that they're not, you know, get up in the morning, put your nose to the grindstone, and work all day until you drop, you know, unless you have to. I mean, that's well, what they, you were talking yeah. about, Paul. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. That's why I say that. The, the personality views description of work only to survive clashes with the description where it says they're industrious. You could have just put hard working. Yeah, they do say hard working under good traits. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Yeah. yeah, play often. Well, you know how the Vikings were. They partied as hard as they, you know. It, it's a running joke in one of my previous campaigns. Eric the Enabler and um, the oldest son of my neighbor, Bad Kitty, who was a charter member of my show. They would, what are we doing? We're drinking with Vikings. And just because they knew how to party, you know, they, they're in their long house with their meat and just whoop it up to all hours of night. And if you're a hardworking culture, 
It's just a human need to want to blow off steam after a while. After busting your butt, you know, 10, 12 hours, you're going to want to kick back and relax. And this culture, you know, the Vikings, they just, they played as hard as they worked. You know, everything they did, they did, well, not excess, but they just put a lot of oomph behind it. Well, also a lot of it, too, is... Uh, whoever the whoever the chief is, the the, the, the head of the the, uh, the clan or, or of the city or village, or whatever it is, this guy prove everybody that he's worth he's worthy of being the leader. So he'll have a party, basically the Viking version of a potlatch. You know, basically I'm going I'm going to provide food in, in in excess of what really should we should have to show how wealthy I am and how how good a provider I am to oh, to my village. Oh yeah. Yeah, well, it says here, wealth, food, family, and friends. Well, yeah, it, you're going to show how, you know, big in the saddle you are by saying, yeah, I got, you know, look at this bounty that me is, you know, excuse me, your chieftain has provided for you. Yeah, you know, we... Right. So they wouldn't amass wealth like in coinage and stuff like that and just hold on to it in a big, uh, a big strong box. They would no. take that money and they would invest it into the community through buying things that are necessary and also spending it on their friends and family to show how what great people they were. Yeah, as a side note, uh, I was reading up on Grendel and they actually found Danish village they thought was the the, the home of, uh, of the original story. And they found there was like about a dozen or so drinking halls. Part you know in, in in that place except for one that was like burned down and not used for anything else, but there's a bunch of other ones that were used over and over again. So you kind of figure there was a party attitude. So there wouldn't just be one drinking hall. There'd be several drinking halls. I think we've already talked about it. You were talking yeah. about how they would be spending the entire winter in the same longhouse. Now you know, we understand what happens with people with cabin fever. If you don't know how to entertain yourselves, if you don't know how to blow off steam and to sing a good song and keep up everybody's cheer, that uh, you know that longhouse is going to be a little empty towards spring. Actually, that is something you, you were mentioning, bards. Yeah, storytelling. That actually should be another thing they're good at. The sagas. A skald. S K A L D. That's the term I was looking for earlier. A skull. Yeah. Which is sort of their, their bards, and they would sing of great wars. No, again, Outlander, the movie with Jim Caviezel. In the longhouses, they had the party, and it was one of the things that Jim Caviezel's character, Kanan, did. The people would all be sitting in a, in a circle around the tables, and they would hold their small wood shields up, and it would be a competition to, you're basically, well, you've already got a few in you, you know, got some meat in you, and I've, I've drank mead. Mead, you might as well just hit me with a bottle, you'd have the same effect. You're got to sit there and keep your balance walking on the shields that the guys are holding up. And you're basically stepping from shield to shield trying to keep your balance. And of course, they're trying not to tip you over because they're just as drunk as you are. Oh, right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an exercise for everybody. Not only are you trying to walk, but you're also trying to hold this 200-pound guy in furs and not all that steady himself up on your little wood shield. Yeah. So, yeah, these guys, they would play hard and... Well, food, family, and friends. It were, camaraderie was a big thing. Uh, let's see. Justice and honor. A family matter and for the family. Again, the importance of the clan. Everything begins with family. Uh, humanity, good friends. I think humanity, they mean not only their own race, but Earth Prime. You know, it's... Right, just, right. Yeah. 
Uh, politics and red tape. Stupid and more stupidity. Well, that that's that's. that's I mean, that's yeah. combat. Combat. Fun. Fun. Yeah, sure. Fun. Again, if you watch the Viking movies, you saw they went in the whole berserker concept. They're going in swinging swords, axes, clubs, hammers, and they're just, hey, combat. Great. We get another way to blow off steam. And it's just they were good at it. Yeah, the that Viking show, they they showed how the shield wall functioned. And, and the mechanisms, the tactics that made that so successful. And they just, they wipe out a force that's three times bigger than they are using the shield wall, where they they grab a guy from the front line and pull him through the wall and let the second line behind the shield wall stab him to death. They uh, surprise the other guy on the other side by opening a hole in the shield wall, and there's an archer standing 10 feet behind who shoots through that hole. They, so if you watch those... Uh, History Channel episodes of the Vikings, you're going to have a really great idea how some of this stuff functions. It's kind of odd about their sea battles. They don't have sea battles like we think of sea battles. It's not ships, you know, maneuvering to get a shot. They lash them together and it turns a, like into a battlefield afloat. And they go for it with wet hand weapons. And, well, yeah, that's that, that's what the Ro- that's how the Romans treated sea battles, too. There was basically land battles on boats. Well, yeah, it's boarding parties. You see them, you know, once they get enough, close enough, they'll just climb over, you know, the edges of the boats and go and just swarm over the enemy's boat. Yeah. Not, not just that, but you take your boat and you, the other guys on your team pull up on your left and your right and you make a big long line of just ships that are lashed side by side and you make a battle line of ships and they just fight a land battle afloat. Hmm, okay. And let's see, the fringes, roots to the world trees. Again, the whole Yggdrasil concept. And because this is a prime, there's portals all over this planet. So once they find the tree, you know, the, the Termellern call it the trees, each node a tree anyway. So it all just sort of links together. I'm sorry, their superstitiousness, would they would immediately, you know, see this as the path to the gods anyways. Oh, yeah, right. Very convenient. So their available skills are survival, hand-to-hand combat, and woodcrafts. Um, now, as we pointed out, they actually had iron working, so I would toss in, you know, smithy. You know, by 1536, they're going, they're going to know how to actually, 1535, they're going to know how to actually make half-decent iron weapons. That. Well, yeah, but I mean, the, those three things that they list are the things that they absolutely have excelled at even before metal really, really got... Yeah. This uh, is good. why I'm saying these guys are the half-orcs. <laughs> kobolds. Uh, I think they're kobolds. No, kobolds... Uh, I, I think Bruce is a little more... Nearer the target with half orcs, just no. They're the Vikings. That's a stereotype right there. The Vikings. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I know they are. That's what I'm saying. But I mean, if we compare them to the you know traditional fantasy type characters, these guys would would fall into it. They're the wild men, the natural born rangers. Yes, yeah, the the wild men. Good traits. Strong. Good friends, loyal, clever, hardworking. Yeah. Uh, bad traits. Drink, bold, wear furs, emotional, superstitious. 
Yeah, they. I would see that they'd wear their emotions on their sleeve. That yeah. honor for them is a big thing. If you do, if you wrong them, they will hunt you down to the ends of the earth. And considering there's a lot of room on this planet, <laughs> that just gives them a lot more area to run. Uh, right. But if but if you're your their friend and something's happened to you, they'll also go to the ends of the earth to find you. Oh yeah, yeah. They will not stop at anything to make sure that a wrong is not avenged in some way. And if you're on an IDIT team and you have a Norlander with you, yeah, they're not going to understand the finer points of diplomacy as we would see it. But if it's a rescue mission, I would want a Norlander leading the way because you know his first best objective is, okay, we need to get our buddy back. When the bean counters walk up and say, well, you know, he says it's just one guy and you're going to lose five people getting that one guy back and it isn't a good idea, he's the one who's going to look at him and going, toss him out of the boat. That Norlander's <laughs> going to look at that bean counter and it's like, you want to try to stop me? Test uh, me. You guys have to factor in Norse religion there too, that everybody's going to die. Even the gods are going to die. It's important how you die. So to be a hero, the greatest accomplishment they could ever do is to fight a last stand. And you ever see one laughing, smiling and carrying on as his enemies hack him apart? It's like he's the most successful. He's, he's, he's done the best you ever can. And I actually suggest at least two, uh, ed- two hindrances you can take in Savage Worlds, Heroic and Berserk. Unfortunately, both of them are major, so you got to pick one or the other. You're going to be a berserker or you're going to be heroic. I would say heroic would lead the way. Barbarian, if you want to use a D&D class. Oh, God, Urban Arcana, I'm blanking. The Thrasher, if you wanted to do a modern class for them. <laughs> uh, strong or tough hero for D20 modern base classes, although me Definitely. personally, I can use them. The Thrasher would probably be the best D20 modern Urban Arcana class to give these guys because they are the ones that go out and are just gonzo in everything that they do. We got to do the quote. Yeah, it's only below zero, snowing and windy, a fine morning for a swim in the river. You come. Where I would be like, that's something you can do. Notice I say something you can do. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't feature the sauna. What? Yeah, what are Scandinavians with a sauna? That's what happens if you survive the the, the river. <laughs> no, no, no. Actually, you do the sauna first. Well, I did that at the first World Steam Expo when it was in the hot tub and then went to the pool and I almost fainted. Yeah. <laughs> Don't forget being whipped by birch branches, though. To open the pores up. Oh, you're such a party animal, John. Wow, yeah. But people still do hey, that. Let's go back to the quote. I mean, so basically, <laughs> these guys, it's like, you know... Things that you would say, well, you know, that this is not like a good idea. They'd be like, let's go do it. You know, no one's been to the top of that mountain. Let's go. I don't think you can drink, you know, uh, five gallons of mead. Let's find out. <laughs> that, that's where the bold thing comes in with the bad traits. You know, these guys, if you were wanting to get over on them, you know, these guys would not be able to turn out a dare. Everything to them is an exclamation points. Yeah. <laughs> Low impulse control. 
there are times that can be used as an excuse and other times just no. <laughs> but, but they would also egg each other on, right? I'm sure they got a brutal sense of humor, too. A very slapstick sense of humor. They greet each other with a headbutt. Yeah. So what's wrong with Olaf? Well, you know, we were having some fun, so I hit him in the head with a chair. But Olaf's going, yeah, but it was fun. <laughs> you should have seen the other guy. Olaf's thing, it was pretty funny. He got me good. That's what I say whenever I hurt myself and say, what happened to you? And I just look and I say, you should see the, what happened to the other guy. Yeah. But next week, you try to milk the bull. <laughs> Naming. Lars, Olaf, Sven, Orum, usually, or often the last name is prefixed by son, meaning son of, of a suffix of some deed or special event from the person's past, Thorpe and Skull Splitter. Yeah. We should probably toss in that actually there's a version for females. Doter. D-O-T-T-E-R. Yeah. Yeah, like, um, Ilsa Svendoter. Ilsa, daughter of Sven. No, 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 no. Daughters are named after their mothers, and sons are named after their fathers. Ah. Helga's daughter. Again, it's very egalitarian. A woman holds position, too. So her, her daughters are descended from her with, with her name. I apologize for my patriarchal upbringing, female listeners. It just, it, it's, I'm a product of my culture, sadly. I'm going to sick Jess on you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no, that's okay. When we finally met at... Last year's uh, 2012 Gen Con, she glomped me. So, yeah, I it, it, no, I'm good. <laughs> mean she, she did an air tackle on you? At the, the podcast meet and greet, when I finally saw her there, me and uh, Amber, I, I call out her name, and she's like, yeah, and I point to my badge of Trav, glop. I'm like, oh, yeah, good to meet you too, Jess. So, yeah, I don't want her mad at me if that's how she greets people. <laughs> yeah. So you want to take a look at, the, at their platforms and alternate platforms? Because there's some interesting stuff there. Why don't we just talk about where the portals are on their world? The ring stations, they're all in really good spots right next to the coast. One that IDET likes the most are the ones right there on the Italian coast. Now, they're RS. What's RS again? Those are ring stations. Oh, ring stations. Oh. Well, it depends where they are. Yeah, they can still be in a cave somewhere in a mountain. Yep. Or in some, some crumpled Roman shrine. Oh, well, let's see here. We got um, Portal 1, the Amazon Basin, the Australian North Coast, Olu, Finland, Barrie, Italy, Palermo, Italy, Kazakh Upland, Kolyma Mountains in Russia, and Ambon Island in the Banda Sea. Okay, the Banda Sea. A artifact research station. That means it's got to be pretty isolated. Actually, in the uh, Indonesia. So what island is it again? Ambon. Ambon Island. Oh, that's actually a fairly big island. Right. But the point is, is that, it, it, you know, you don't want to do your artifact research anywhere near people because you never know what one of those things are going to do. Right. Basically, Bounded Sea is bounded by East Timor, Indonesia. Papua New Guinea. Papua New Guinea and a little bit of Australia. The Northwest Territories. Archipelago, Yeah. Yeah, let's see. Actually, the only portal that would be in their immediate native area would be Olu, Finland. Everything else is, well, no, Kazakh, Upland. Uh, No. That's that's in the Urals. Kolima Mountains in Russia. I'm not sure how far north that is, but. Google Map is your friend. Pretty far. (laughs) I imagine that they came through, let's say they, uh, through the ring stations. 
and they find the people living there because it's a nicer climate. So, you know, they're going to I think the Norlanders are going to migrate south, you know, and, and set their, up their cultural centers further south because it's just a nicer place. But it's going to be great to, for them to say, hey, you mean if we're friends, we could just go through this portal and jump back to the homeland? Well, I think that would be pretty cool the first time they pull, you pull that off and show that to the Norlanders. But Bruce, do you think they will, though? Because they know by where they live, they survived the plague. And stuff down there didn't survive the plague. People will tend to spread out. And it's also 600, it's 900 years. By the time, it's going to be a, a, a fairy tale. You know, yes, they'll be very extra, extra cautious. And they will, you know, you'll find Thor's hammers or whatever all over the place. You know, and you'll see them that they probably have either buried or burned the bodies. Yeah, I'm just wondering if it becomes the cultural center. If, like, the cultural center of the Norlanders isn't something like Helsinki or something like that. And all those other places are just the colonies, the trading posts. Well, it might be a religious center. It might be a place that they do pilgrimages back to, just like, you know, people do go to Mecca and such. So I'm just saying, knowing that there's this connection between down here and the homeland, that's going to be – that's going to sound very, very religiously important to them. Yeah. It buries on the uh... – no, eastern side of, of Italy on the coast, and Palermo is, well, on, I think, believe on the opposite side. It's all the way down at the very point of the boot. Yeah, there it is. Palermo's off. The Amazon Basin's off. The Italian north coast is on. Although Finland's on. Barry Italy's on. You mean Australian North Coast. You said Italian North Coast. Australian North Coast. Italy's the next line under. Yeah, Australian North Coast. Yeah. Actually, Australia North Coast and uh, and Ambon Island, they're like right next to each other. This one's kind of unusual with the number of portals that are open. Six out of eight are open. Now, we know that's not true because the way the game works is, is that they're all locked down until you decide to open them up. Yeah, and based on the fact that it's fairly heavy, really heavy Norse, uh, I would say it's probably the Ulu Finland that's probably an open one. I think it's going to be the ones in Italy first. Okay. I mean, just from the description, you know, the Norlands become a supply house for them. Of course, they say warp stations along the Italian continent, and those are ring stations. So I think this particular node needs to be rewritten a bit. Yeah. Okay, Kazakhstan. Okay, so we're talking up there by Omsk. I have no idea where that is. That's in Russia. Yeah, but looking at Russia, like East Russia, West Russia. Go to the Black Sea, go north, and then go go east. Yeah. Kazakhstan and the Kazakhs of the Plains. Well, Southern Russia. It's, it's actually borders on, borders on Mongolia. Okay. No, sorry, I lied. Borders on China. <laughs> Either way. Yeah, Kazakhstan. It just depends if they've got there yet. Like this says, in 300 years, they got as far as the Urals. I mean, the portal's on, but there's no Norlanders over there. Just say, I think we kind of, as Blix would say, killed this one as far as the Norlanders. And we, yeah, we do realize that we pretty much filled out as best we can with the Norlanders and that we've seemed to have corrected some things that were misprinted or mistyped, like the tech level for the Norlanders. That it, it, it was said for and we've come to realize, no, it's more of a PL2 by D20 parlance. So I think we need to maybe in the future 
come back to Norse culture and how and make it how I describe it. it's a monoculture without the influences of of Greece and the Greeks and the Latin languages. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, and, and we didn't get to religion because where does Christianity stand in this? Because it's seventh century when the plague hits, but how widespread was Christianity at that point? Had Rome converted by that point? Yes. Constantine is 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 Constantinople though. Yes, but he also well, he also became Christian. When did Rome convert? Was that the third century, fifth century? Uh, Two seventy two A.D. So yeah, he that's the uh, third century. So they were about four hundred years before this plague hit and wiped them all out. So. Yeah, there would be massive signs of Christianity all throughout Europe as the Norlanders came down and see across here, across there, crosses over there, crosses, you know, cemeteries overgrown with just crosses everywhere for their statue. But I wonder what their opinion is on Christianity since all the practitioners died. Yeah, they'd be like, yeah, real, real interesting religion. I'm looking at a map on the spread of Christianity by AD 600. It had not penetrated uh, northern Germany and the uh, Scandinavian uh, areas. Right. That's why we said when we did the Urgers that they were along the eastern coast. Yeah. So, yeah. So, by 600, yeah, if, if there was any Christianity, they were lone missionaries up there. So I'm just wondering what's, what's their attitude on Christianity. Well, our gods protected us. Yours didn't. Yeah. Odin, <laughs> Odin lo- over, looked over us. Yeah, nice religion. We see how it worked out for you, basically, is how the Norlanders would see it. Yeah, and the Christians would be like, well, we're still here. <laughs> and the Norlanders would look, go, that can be remedied real quick. Okay, we're sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I think they would appreciate their uh, chutzpah, uh, wh- or whatever the term is in Norland for that. <laughs> I don't see any real competition with Christianity versus... Versus this pagan, yeah, the Norse, the Norse religions, North Panis Theon. So I'm thinking you're going to find Stonehenge's in place. You're going to find those winter festivals, those harvest festivals, as as dominance. So you're going to have Samhain. You're going to have Bel, Bel the Beltane feast and whatnot. Samhain, Samhain. You know. Every, I'll, I'll just keep saying Sam Hain because every time I run into somebody who says they know, they get it wrong. I know, yeah. I was corrected by um, Perky Goth's husband, Oz. They're both pagans, so yeah, I, I was corrected constantly. What is this world? Is it psionic? Magic? Nah, I, if anything, it probably has psionics. But, you know, we're only talking like, you know, at best 40 million people. So if they're fringe-worthy the same numbers as everyone else, they got even less fringe-worthy than, than, than anyone else. Looking at the alternate platform, there's nothing here that indicates magic. So it's probably either just straight-up science or just with some psionics if anybody should actually have it. And psionics to them, they'll chalk it up as magic. They'll just, yeah, so they see it as magic, but... Anybody from Earth Prime will go, no, they're psi. Mm-hmm. They're just doing the hand-waving because that's how their culture is. Well, let's see. John, how many people did you say were on the world? Five million altogether? At 600, five million, 600 AD, then normal population growth. I mean, they would, as they expand and travel and move down to warmer climes. Okay, by 1535. 
You were saying about 40 million, John. Yeah, about 40 million. 4,000 fringe worthy on the world? You're not going to have that many Norlanders in, in IDET then because you got to take into account young, old, infirm. And really spread out. Yeah, so you're not going to have <laughs> having a Norlander in a campaign. He's going to be the only person in that campaign just yeah, because. The, one, the Norlander. Yeah. <laughs> He will be the token Norlander. You're going to have a handful of them in the alien core. And one thing you probably should look at is, and we were talking all about Europe, but, you know, we completely, you know, they got to America. So the American colonies may actually be fairly independent of their old world uh, uh, relations. Well, it, it takes 52 days to sail across the Atlantic. Yeah. It's a long time to wait for a message. In good weather. Yeah, in in summertime, if a hurricane doesn't kill you, <laughs> but yeah, so it's it's a fifty days each way, not counting the long walk or the ride on those little Shetland ponies, hundreds of miles to get to somebody. Or sailing up and down the St. Lawrence River, or the or the Mississippi, or down the Ohio, or down the Atlantic coastline. This world is not going to have a uniculture by any means. And actually, there's only one new world portal. That's the Amazon Basin. And it's quite definite there's no one down there. <laughs> actually, I did that back. There may be some down there. There might be, yeah, because of the fact of how secluded they are. Trust me, I've had to do research on the Yanomami for Maze World. They are a very insular culture. They're so, too busy fighting among themselves to sit there and deal with outside people. Well, actually, at this point in time, there actually were very large... Starting a very large cultures. Let's see, the Amazon basin that would be the Incas. Mm, Mayans from Central America, Aztec word Mexico. It's the Incan. Yeah, it'd be Incan. And if we assume that it is temp it may be something that temperatures up in the up in the Andes, they might have survived up there. So yeah, somewhere in the middle of the Andes you have not maybe not Incas, but you have a you have a survivor culture up there who you know, looking to, looking to stretch out and, and, and occupy as well. So you're saying that if you go to the Amazon Basin, you should find a completely different culture than the Norlanders uh, everywhere else. Yeah. You're on a European oh, yeah. continent. And, and for those of you who don't know, the Yanomami are indigenous people in the Venezuela Brazilian area in South America, which is the Amazon Basin. Yeah, very jungle oriented you know they're they're in the rainforests and they they live off the land a pl1 culture and yeah they would be quite they are quite different than the vikings i mean okay they still have that live hard die hard party hard mentality oh no they throw down at the drop of a hat but they are also very family oriented so in many ways in some ways they're similar to the vikings in that respect the Vikings, if you're not us, then you're prey. Yes, the Yanomami are like that, too. Clans will go to war and steal each other's women. So, yeah. I think that's a PL1, PL2 trait. That's a matter of survival. We're taking women to keep our clan going. Yeah. But there will be the mountain people, which would probably be more prevalent. And the mountain people, even back then, even, even 300, there was uh, cities built and so forth. So yeah, it wouldn't be Incan, but it'd be something else. Mesoamerican. Let's just leave it at that. Mesoamerican. There. We no, Mesoamerican actually is is Mexico. 
We're talking Peruvian. Mezzo's middle. Yeah, Peruvian Indians are, are Peruvian Native. I don't know. Peruvians are different. Inc- the Incans were different. <laughs> okay. <laughs> How illuminating. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But I'm saying, what else stands out about them being Norlanders culturally that makes them fun or different to play? I don't want to just play another big, um, surly, English-speaking guy who wears furs and swings an axe. So what is it about them culturally that makes them different and interesting? They live everything in exclamation points. They live hard, they work hard, they party hard, they fight hard. Player characters. I think what you should do is that I think you should go and compare these guys to our lizard pals. <laughs> yeah, they're the probably two guys on the team that speak the same language. Eh, get it. But they are totally different because uh, I've, I've forgotten the name of the lizard race. What is it? It's a seal. The, the, yeah, okay. The the Tazeel, you know, we talk about them being noble. We talk about them being, you know, clo- basically closed mouthed, you know, the the, tr- the almost classic uh, spear carrier, you know, um, you know, uh, best man kind of thing. These guys are not okay. They're not, you know, they're 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 good friends and stuff like that. But these are the wild men. These are the guys that are frothing at the bit. So the, putting these two together, even though they're both warrior cultures. You know, you're going to find t- them totally different in temperament, even though they says that they're indifferent. That doesn't mean they don't get excited. It just means that they don't hold a grudge. I would see the Tazeel looking at the Norlanders and going, good fighters, loud. And I can see the Norlanders going, they don't have the same family values that we do. Because remember, as we pointed out, they uh, as, we, as, we, as we decided that, you know, they, they lay their eggs, and whoever comes back gets to grow up to be a, be a big toast to zeal. I think the only way that they would get along is in a fight. Then be like, okay, at least they got that right. <laughs> yeah, because the, the Vikings fight as a, as a cohesive unit. I mean, they do break down into individual combat, and you're known for your individual deeds, but they do understand that they are more effective fighting as a unit and they are fighting with their brothers, with their sisters, their uncles, their cousins. They're a family unit. Well, there are a few things scarier than a Viking horde coming at you. Let's face it. They're fearless. Yes. Because to die in combat, especially fighting a last stand is the best hope you can achieve to get into Valhalla. Yes. Yep. You are selected. The Valkyries are coming for you. Yes, to zeal traits, I'd say they're taciturn. They're they almost they though they are temperamental, and they're easily offended. So I can see a lot of arguments happening. But then again, only when you really push them, they don't offer opinions. Therefore, I'd say they're a bit more taciturn than uh, than the, than the Norlanders. Yeah, the, the yeah, Norlanders I, are emotional. So yeah, they they're if they're if they're going to speak their mind as soon as they have a thought you know to be expressed. Yeah, don't have the Norlander as the diplomat. Yeah. He's the first one to laugh at the table. He's the diplomat when you want to use... Gunboat diplomacy, yes. Gunboat diplomacy, thank you, Trav. Yeah, first contact, I can see that the person you actually want to meet with the Norlanders is probably the Mongolians. Putting a Mongolian and a, a Viking together? Oh. Didn't we say that the Romans, the, the, the Golden Horde, and the Norlanders are probably going to build their own subset within the commonwealth because they get each other yeah with the romans in charge because yeah that's what the romans do the romans are always organized 
but they're for another show. We should do the Romans sometime in the next 20 episodes. We definitely will. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sometime in the next year. <laughs> and John is going to be doing the Victorians for the oh, 200 yeah, episode, right, John? I, mean, I also done a lot of work on the Romans as well. Victorians, yes. The Victorians will take at least one episode. And I have my chimney sweep with me, right, Paul? Boy, <laughs> yee. <laughs> Governor. Norlanders are an excellent emotive group that it would be really fun to play if you're into characters who think with their fists, who love to have a great party, and aren't really that interested in going the diplomatic route. Yeah, sure. If you like characters that are gung-ho, are more interested in seeing what's on the other side of the horizon than figuring out all the nuances in every village that you come across, the Norlanders, they're your guys. I suspect that they're probably going to be there at the end of the battle when everybody else in the team is all, you know, hiding inside of the RV, uh, the Moscovy, because it's just a little too scary out there. When you go to rescue them from, from where it got in trouble, they're the ones that end up rescuing you. But they'll be very grateful, too. You know, they won't be one of these guys like, you know, well, about time you got here. <laughs> Did you bring more beer? There you go. All right, so we hope you've enjoyed our uh, little excursion to the northern clines in this remnant of the humanity, which be, which basically claimed a world for their own. And we hope that you will use them in your game. And please, if you do use the Norlanders, let us know how the experience worked out, all the nuances you were able to bring to the game through using this interesting subculture of humanity. Uh, and if you do, please post it on our Facebook groups, fans of the TriTech podcast, uh, Fringeworthy, and all the other places we have. You know, and I wish we could consolidate these all together to like one or two so we oh, can pay yeah. more attention to them. So mostly we live on Facebook, and we hope that you'll visit us there and let us know what your experiences are because we'd love to hear about it. We will be bringing you even more fun and gaming options as the Fringeworthy game continues to develop. But you'll have to wait until next week. But until then, this is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there. So go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. And this is Paul. When you remove the pin, Mr. Grenade is no longer your friend. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Yo, brothers. This was the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. You know the drill. It's protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial reproduction, no derivatives, and sucker, you best attribute this to the folks at Tri-Tech Games. And if you don't, We'll be after your sorry butts, cause we're some bad mothers. Hi, this is Trav of the Travcast, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association on DementiaRadio.org, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern.